This is Regenerative Skills, the podcast helping you to learn the skills and solutions to create an abundant and connected future. I'm your host, Oliver Gaucher. I don't know about you, but even though there's unlimited information available online, I tend to learn best by doing things and actually getting my hands dirty. If you're interested in making the leap from screens to the land, then I've got some exciting learning events for you. I'm going to be teaching two of my favorite subjects this upcoming autumn at the Green Rebel Farm in beautiful Miravet, Spain. The first course is a weekend intensive on regenerative agroforestry designed for people who want to try their hands at a range of different tree planting and orchard maintenance skills. We'll cover the whole range from reading a landscape and propagating plants, to planning a planting project, getting trees in the ground, maintaining a growing system, and even pruning a grown forest. The best part is that all of these are based on activities to advance a real farm. The second event is a five-day deep dive into the regenerative design process, again with a focus on agroforestry. This course is designed for people who are either considering buying land or who are at the early stages of developing a site and want to ensure that they get off on a profitable regenerative trajectory. We'll work through the scale of permanence, learning to gather essential information about the landscape, vegetation, and soil. From there, we'll work through hydrological capture and restoration, planning for productive planting and reforestation, business considerations, soil health regeneration, and much more. All of this too will be taught through hands-on activities, so you leave not only knowing how to develop an effective and profitable design, but also with experience with the work and skills required to get things done. This weekend agroforestry intensive will be from Friday the 16th through Sunday the 18th of September. And the design workshop goes from Tuesday the 11th to Sunday the 16th of October. So don't start your project with digital learning alone. Come and get your hands dirty with inspiring, like-minded people and level up your skills this autumn. You can learn more by clicking at the link at regenerativeskills.com or on the link tree in the bio on our Instagram. Early bird discounts are now open, so don't hesitate. And I'll see you in the orchard soon. Hey there, everybody, and welcome back to this ongoing series on tree planting and agroforestry. This week will be the first of a two-part interview that I did with Philip Gerhardt, the founder of the website baumweltwirtschaft.de, which translates basically to tree farming. He's also the managing director of Deutsch Agroforest GmbH. Philip is also considered a leading expert for key line design in Central Europe and is active in research projects and as a lecturer in seminars. As a pioneer in agroforestry, he has developed new approaches with his team to implement modern agroforestry and water management systems. Together, they develop holistic contexts for protection against drought and floods for companies or municipalities with elements from key line design and regenerative agriculture, as well as climate-friendly forest conversion. He's also advised numerous companies that are changing the landscape in the long term and are building new climate-friendly ways of doing business. Now, I first got to know Philip in person when I was working with our team at Climate Farmers to organize our conference last year. I was thrilled to find him in our group of agroforestry nerds, and I learned so much from him in just a few days. One of my highlights from the event, in fact, was getting to listen in on the conversations that Philip and Mark Shepard had about the history and the evolution of forestry science, and I knew that I had to get Philip on an episode one day. Well, it finally happened, and the result was an hour and a half conversation that I split into two parts in which Philip and I explore both high-level concepts of integrating trees into agricultural landscapes and the role that they play in restoring the healthy function of the hydrological cycle of the land, all the way through detailed stories of case studies and projects that Philip and I are working on. There's really so much useful and practical information in these sessions, so instead of giving a drawn-out introduction, I'm just going to hand things over to Dr. Philip Gerhardt. I think a really good place to start is to go back to that conference where you and I first met, and because I distinctly remember listening in on a really cool conversation with you and Mark Shepard, in which you started to talk about the, the history of formal agroforestry and forestry management and some of the people who've inspired and influenced your, your own work. And with that in mind, maybe we can go to the beginning of how you began to work in forestry and some of the people in the work that have influenced you along the way. Mm -hmm. Yeah, 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 there, there's, a, there's a very, very strong uh, influence of the, uh, well, we, we call them 
forest tree classics, like forstliche Klassiker in German, like because it was in the classic period, like the same time as Goethe and Schiller, beginning of the 19th century, end of the 18th century. Um, and well, these, these were the people basically inventing modern forestry. And uh, so what, what does that have to do with my work? I studied forestry in Tarant, which is a very small village near Dresden in Germany. It only has a thousand or a thousand five hundred inhabitants, but 600 forestry students. Um, and it's the oldest um, forestry academy in, in the world. And it was founded by Heinrich Kotter. And uh, yeah, he, he grew up in, in central Germany in, in Thuringia um, as the child of a forester. And he, he learned forest management like from early on and he um, educated himself scientifically and then he, he was called by the Saxon king to, um, to build up this academy. And by yeah the, the beginning of the 19th century, um, he, he was already like famous in, in the German um, world <laughs> in, in central europe and because it was many states like he was called to many different states to to teach and to advise on forestry issues and um and then uh he uh he wrote a very small book which is um mostly unrecognized um today it's called uh die baumfeldwirtschaft like tree fields economy you might translate it and um uh, and, and the subtitle was uh, was like um, combining silviculture and agriculture. Yeah, that, that's basically the, the first first book about agroforestry. I think I, I, I've never heard about uh, any any other work uh, that's that's distinctly creating this idea of of putting trees in the fields. And why did he write that? Because he, um, besides being the director of the forestry academy. Um, he was also the Saxon uh, royal forest inspector. So he traveled through the whole kingdom, um, measuring the forests and uh, telling foresters what to do. And because it was a big issue at that time to get sustainability into forestry, um, people struggled because they had uh, less forest area than today. They had not enough wood. And so the states were really struggling. How can we get a, a sustainable wood production? How can we manage forests? How can we, in the first place, measure what's in the forest and how much can we take out? How much do we need to replant? And that was the time when all these forestry um, or forest inventory um, techniques developed. So he traveled very far. And after the uh, Napoleonic Wars, um, he, uh, he saw that there were, um, uh, there were huge uh, famines in the regions, which um, were thought to be like the, um, like the, the, um, the, the most um, uh, productive uh, arable areas. So where, where they grew a lot of, of cereals, there were famines. And then in other regions, which were like, um, more structured on a small scale, had a lot of hedges or wild growing fruit trees, apples and, and walnuts. He discovered that the famine um, wasn't, wasn't really taking place. Um, and that was because in the wars, the, the fields got destroyed or people didn't, didn't plow them, didn't, didn't sow. And so they had nothing to harvest. But in these small, small scale structured regions, people just um, switched over to the old practices of um, harvesting wild fruits and, and eating them. Uh, and yeah, and, and that, I mean, in like rich farmers would usually just, just eat, um, yeah, food from, from, from arable land. They would uh, eat a lot of, of like grains because it's a status symbol. But um, you can see that in museums, um, that they had um, divide that especially small farmers still had a lot of devices from uh, the 18th century to um, to collect like something like hawthorn and small berries and just um, smash them and, uh, and 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 then dry the um, the outcome so so they have a kind of leathery uh, fruit thing that you can you can just rip off pieces and chew. 
Yeah, um, early early fruit roll-ups. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. And um, <laughs> yeah, and so he was inspired by that and said, "Hey, wow, why don't we just grow grow more 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 tree crops?" Um, and that's actually the thing that would stabilize the economy, that would that would make it resilient, and um, and that would, on the other hand, um, uh, tackle this problem of the state having not enough wood um, because you would grow wood outside the forest you would you would basically area for, for wood production that that hasn't been used before and uh, on the other hand he saw that um, uh, that the the grain production could benefit from it as well that it's very fascinating that he, he wrote the book in 1819 and he has a list of benefits that agroforestry would would bring and the last one is um even the climate would improve yeah and that's that's way ahead of its time yeah way ahead 200 years ahead of his time definitely yeah the place where he 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 was teaching 200 years before and all the professors said yeah read the works of Heinrich Kotter and he's so famous and he's such a Wow, such a giant and he had such ideas and I was like yeah come on blah blah I just want to finish my studies and I have enough to do so I never actually read the stuff but then um a couple of years after my studies I I, I didn't want to do forestry because I found it also uh, how to say it over over administered you might say um and so I, I did something else. I, I worked uh, with a blacksmith and I, I did some instrument building and, and crafts and stuff. And then, but then I met a guy, a um, friend of mine who, who was into the permaculture scene and, and uh, he said, yeah, you know, you've studied forestry. Why don't you come to the uh, agroforestry campaign meetings? That, that was a thing. Um, uh, yeah, it, it was called Agroforst Campagne. It was kind of a loose, um, thing where where some people met that that were interested in promoting agroforestry and that actually led to the founding of the german agroforestry federation two or three years ago um so it's we now have a like a big institution that can get funds and we're really working to to promote agroforestry but at that time it was just a bunch of enthusiasts uh meeting uh on an unregular basis and so I went to one of these meetings and uh, there I, I got in touch with a guy who, um, or somebody gave me a, a, um, an article about historic agroforestry systems in Germany. And then um, in that report, Heinrich Kotter and his book were mentioned. And I was like, what? This, agro, this, this forestry science guy who, who's so famous wrote something about agroforestry. I need to read that. And so I got the book and read it. And, and then it was like, wow, I, I, I kind of grew up in this tradition, like with my studies. I, I, I learned the stuff that he taught and, and, and I, I began to revise the, the stuff I learned. And, and then I was like, wow, I actually learned agroforestry practices. I learned how to do it. I just learned it for the forest. I learned how to deal with trees. Um, but I can plant them in a row as well. And, and, and I don't care if there's like a, like a clear cut in between or if it's an, uh, it's a, if it's a grain field. So um, I can, I can do much of the stuff that's, that's necessary to promote agroforestry. And then I got in touch with key line design also by a friend of mine who, who said, Hey, um, look at this. And I read it. I, I just flipped across the, the book of humans and, and I was like, wow, um, I learned a lot of that in, in forestry. I can do geodesy and, and road building, uh, ditch building and uh, leveling stuff. And yeah, so I, I was inspired to work in this field again. I was like, why am I doing crafts stuff and, and working on such a small scale when the world needs this now? And I can do it. I can contribute to that. It's important to do now because we need to, to do something to... That's the way I, I got into this. And, and it was largely inspired. It's largely unknown. And, uh, but, but there's this, this knowledge base that we have. And yeah, so... I, th I think that's that's it. 
Well, that's fascinating because it sounds like the origins of forestry management and agroforestry not only were very similar, but were a lot further ahead of their time than what we currently associate with both of these practices. And maybe you can give me an idea of where you see forestry being at the moment. I mean, you were saying before that you got out of it originally because it was over-administered or perhaps too bureaucratic. Mm -hmm. What do most people think of forestry management at the moment and how has it kind of gotten away from its original intent? Yeah, well, there's one thing that's uh, maybe the most significant. Uh, Heinrich Kotter wrote, um, and uh, he wrote a, a book um, about um, about forests, forest management, um, and uh, and about the about like forestry science and, and how to deal with the forests scientifically and from the administration point of view. And then the foreword, he wrote, um, um, "Who allowed this feeble science?" to look at the need to see the forest in connection with the landscape. That was in the foreword of this book. And I think that's something that we that we lost along the way. Um, I tend to say that uh, the, the forests aren't saved in the forests. They're saved out in the fields because we, we have patches of forests in a landscape that is, um, yeah, that, that is that, that needs more trees, you might say, because the climate isn't isn't working. We have these huge arable fields and, and agricultural landscapes, and they're drying out, they're heating up. And how can we protect forests? For example, in Central Europe, with uh, beech trees that that need uh, a moist and cool climate, uh, and they're dying in the forests. And and now, if you if you um, if you like do forest restoration and you go from spruce forests from pine forests to beech forests um, it won't work they they will be gone in the next decades because the climate is heating up so we need to do something in the landscape and that's um, this idea of the bombfed which of, of the tree fields economy that that you that you give the landscape more roughness uh more um uh photosynthesis more more uh, biologic production and and also more um what is it um ev evaporation so that it cools the climate and and there are studies um nowadays which show that we if if we change the landscape to an agroforestry landscape with just 10 percent agroforestry in central europe you might uh, lower the temperature by almost a degree um, in modeling studies, and that is very, very significant. And we see that the beech trees in the forests are dying um, because of 1.5 degrees uh, warmth that we that we already have. So um, if we can get back to to like one degree less, um, we create the um, the conditions in which the forest that we we would like to have can survive. So that's um, that's one point. Like we need to see the forests in connection with the landscape. And the other thing is that we um, have a mindset now of uh, the, the the mindset we have with forests or the the attitude we have towards forests is largely defined by people in cities. Uh, because more and more people live in cities and um, there's a kind of a hypocrisy you might say because people want natural forests they want to have uh, like forest reserves they want to have dead wood and and like yeah forests for um, uh, uh, for leisure time activities but they consume more and more wood how can people in Germany actually demand that forests are put under protection and not used anymore? And on the other hand, go to Ikea every two weeks and get new furniture. Uh, that, that doesn't work. Like um, at the moment I'm in Berlin and we have the Grunewald forest here um, in, just, just in the vicinity. And it's, it's developing towards a, like a, a, yeah, I don't know, leisure time forest like, like there's so much dead wood it's, it's so much broadleaf trees and everything and it's in large parts not not used anymore um and 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 then outside in the country about there you have these huge pine plantations and so that's um that's the second point 
we need to manage forests and we, we can't say, oh, we just want uh, uh, native species and natural forests, blah, blah. We, we need to manage them uh, because we are using them and we can't not use them. We need wood. It's, it's one of the basic resources for a lot of things. Yeah? And we need them, the forests to be there um, uh, in the landscape, to cool the landscape. Plus we need agroforestry landscapes, which has a much larger effect in terms of cooling and, and moistening the landscapes again. And the third point is the way how we manage forests, but that's that's like linked to this urban mindset. I already mentioned it that um, uh, that that people demand we have only natural or, or native species in the forests, and that doesn't work anymore because we um, uh, we're getting a hotter climate, and um, in, in climate simulations, for example, beech trees, which would now cover like most of the of the of the yeah medium medium uh, sites in, in in Germany, it would retreat basically to the to the upper levels of the Bavarian forest, for example, where, where it's nowadays really damp and cold, and and you have spruce growing. Um, so um, we need to experiment with with new tree species and also with uh, new silvicultural. Uh, measures to to establish forests and to manage them. We need to get back to more um, uh, pioneer trees in the forests, um, like growing poplars, for example. If if we have like places in the forest, and that happens now because of climate change, where you get huge cleared areas because of bark beetle or uh, forest fires, um, we need to maybe adapt a bit of these agroforestry. Practices in, in agroforestry, we know we're planting into a, a desert climate basically because that's what what arable land ecologically is. We need to, to plant very strong trees, and uh, and we really need to take care. How is now? There's no use in in uh, planters on on a, on a huge clear cut or. or or forest fire area. So I would basically apply agroforestry practices there as well, planting poplars first and not like using natural regeneration with, with just letting the, the poplars fly in because that's too slow. We need to, to get more speed into the reforestation because uh, to, to get the carbon in, uh, in the soil again. And so I would, would actually use what we use in agroforestry, like one, one meter 80, two meter uh, poplar, um, uh, cuttings to, to put them in the soil as deep as possible and, and let them grow rapidly and then go in with, uh, with, the, with the trees that, that follow the pioneers. Um, for example, oaks and, and other shade tolerant trees. And uh, that's also economically interesting because we, we have a huge degree of mechanization and we need to go in with, with harvesters and, and we need to build um, skidding tracks. And so you could put the poplars on, on, on the future skidding tracks. And then with the first um, uh, thinning of the, of, the, of the young growth in 20 years, 25 years, uh, the harvester can just harvest uh, like ready to harvest poplars on the skidding, uh, skidding tracks. I guess my next question is probably quite in line with what you just laid out, but what are some of the biggest threats to the health of forests in the areas that you've worked so far? Is it related to the shift in temperature and poor management practices, or are there other things like disease and insects and other threats? Mm, I would say it's all linked to, to the drought and the heating up of the, of the atmosphere. Um, we have in the area where I live in, in Brandenburg, Eastern Germany, we have huge uh, pine plantations. It's pine monoculture um, um, most, in most of the forests. And that makes them very vulnerable, of course, to diseases and pests. Um, but if you have a healthy pine tree, it can resist these, uh, these pests and diseases. But the trees aren't healthy anymore because it's too dry and too hot. And so it's mostly linked to, to climate issues. Um, it, it worked for 150 years to have these, these monoculture plantations because people managed to manage them in a healthy condition. 
um, but we don't have it anymore. So um, I, I think um, the, the thing we really need to do now is um, scale up agroforestry in the next 10 years so that we, that we have, <laughs> it would be necessary to basically have agroforestry everywhere. And every field that needs to be agroforestry, but that of course can be like um, grains with chestnut rows, can be um, like uh, poplar rows for um, because we have huge um, ag with large scale farming. So I can't tell people to do like uh, very like fiddly mixed species plantings like. Um, some guys from South America promote, it doesn't work here. So we need to get into a different thinking of dynamic agroforestry. Of course, we need to, to, use, the, um, uh, to use the pioneer species and then we can come after them with, uh, with uh, uh, trees that, that need like moisture and, and less windy and less dry conditions. Um, but we can't do like mixed plantings and everything. So um, it's a good idea to, to, to really scale that up, to, to do what farming businesses nowadays can actually manage. And that's heating and get a lot of, of poplars for chipwood on the fields. Much, much better than what we have outside in the landscape now. So that's what I would say. Hey, let's do that at least in Eastern Germany or in the drier areas in of the northern German plains. It, it also would apply to Poland and to um, areas like Eastern Austria, Hungary, some areas in, in France, like just take agriculture as it is and put in uh, pioneer tree uh, strips for, for, for chipwood production, for bioeconomy, um, that, that suits the, the practices they have. And if it's 48 meters or 20, uh, 72 meters, I don't care. If, if you have small scale businesses and you have young enthusiastic farmers which only have 10 hectares, then okay, let's do a chestnut forest and produce chestnuts. I'm, I'm really uh, going for, for a woody agriculture and I think we, sh we should eat chestnuts and nuts, but... Um, that won't that's it won't work with the economy we have now and the agricultural businesses so yeah to save the forests we need to scale up agroforestry really really fast to cool down the regional climate and that basically means turning the agricultural landscape into a big cooler it's if you look at, at an agricultural at, at an agroforestry um field it, it also looks like the cooler of a car yeah it, or or a, or a heating uh, radiator you, you have these these um the structure with the uh, what, what would you call it like these uh um these these fine strips uh that 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 make uh, a cooler having having more surface area and that's exactly oh yeah what... yeah like the baffle plates or yeah the fins yeah fins yeah you mind fins that that mm -hmm. sounds right yeah yeah. So if if you look at a car cooler, uh, and, and uh, that that's how our fields must look, and uh, ah, that's and a really can... good way of putting it. Yeah, from a, like an engineering standpoint. So those are the areas that are helping to dissipate the heat that are in the cultivated rows in between. And I would imagine they have somewhat of a similar effect of holding moisture down at the lower levels of the fields as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that that's um, that's what we actually. Um, found out we have some some scientific studies already going on and actually a colleague of mine who, who studied with me um he's um uh work he did a study where he um compared lot with yields on, on a big arable and more grain yield in the agroforestry plot and it could be explained by the um less um uh, evaporative stress um because there's there's more uh, more dew in the in between the um, in, in between the, the the agroforestry rows and the more moisture and and that's why the why the cereals grow better and the, in terms of the cooling effect that's also uh, if you have this uh, huge surface area with um, with leaves and photosynthesis there's a lot of um, uh, of evaporation. And you might say, okay, then the, the water is gone, uh, but it's not because we're enriching the lower uh, uh, air um, layers 
with moisture and then and the more moisture you have in the air the less the evaporative stress is and then if you have this uh, structure um, uh, in, in meteorology we talk about uh, uh, a high um, uh, what's it called um, uh, roughness element density so if you if you do yeah, if you put a lot of roughness elements in the fields, you have a high roughness and that lowers the wind speed. And that means the moisture, the, the moist air stays there. So yeah, the, it, it protects the, the grains and so and the and the water is not gone. And then if you have turbulence, which is created by the roughness as well, um, then the, the moist air needs to go up, but it's cooler than if you just have arable land. And then you, if it's cooler, you get to the point where it, where it formed clouds much earlier. And then you have precipitation. And that's what we call precipitation recycling. Mm -hmm. um, if, you, if you look at an arable landscape without agroforestry, um, it's, uh, it's heating up much quicker. If you, if you look at uh, birds of prey, they usually um, uh, circle above uh, freshly plowed fields because there's a lot of heat going up. And uh, also, if you, if you look at uh, harvested fields, the, the, the air is, uh, is like has this wavering uh, pattern. You, you, like you, you can see the, the heat and, and, and the birds will, will also circle above these fields. And if you, if you then go towards hedges or agroforestry, um, strips, uh, tree strips. Then, um, then there's, then you can still catch some moisture with your feet in the fields uh, by by midday or in the afternoon. And that's the that's the effect where we're getting more moisture and and that cools the air. It it um, um, yeah, it's it's there for the plants to use. It's usable by the plants. And um, the whole uh, cloud formation and precipitation. So we're we're closing the, the regional water cycle, um, and that means more moisture and cooler air. Yeah, and all of this is closely tied in with the the local water cycle and the hydrological health of the land. Mm -hmm. And oh yes, trees play such a big role in that. I know you talked about your study and your applications of key line design as well. Can you talk about the hydrological element of reforestation and the health of forests, as well as some of the considerations, perhaps when you're planting new trees, about making sure that there's enough water in the system so that they can get established? Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, that, that's a very interesting topic, the water cycle. Um, and and uh, well, in, in Brandenburg, we... Um, we had the like you know that tesla is building the the first big factory in europe uh, just outside berlin in brandenburg and there was a huge debate on how much water the factory would use and how to get that uh, back into the ground because we're having this uh, problem that the uh, that the water level is dropping and dropping in brandenburg because we're, we're basically drying out and um and then uh, uh, Elon Musk promised to to plant, I think, three times as much uh, forest as he he was obliged to plant um, uh, by law uh, because he he, he built this factory. And I always thought um, that all the trees they're planting it, they would be much more efficient if they not planted them like in one place to to re restore a forest. Um, but but to spread them out on the fields and produce a lot of agroforestry um, because we then have this cooler effect and, um, uh, and and that does and and then we can catch more rain and if you if we can catch more rain uh, then then get more water in the ground again and um, then if you have um, Agroforestry, for example, it's uh, you could regard that as a medium density um, savanna or something. And we know that in forests, um, you uh, you have less water going into the ground and recharging the groundwater. Uh, but when you have a lot of rain can get on the ground, but the ground is also uh, receptive for this rain because it's kept moist 
by the facility of the agroforestry strips. Because of the of the dew that we have soil, it won't let us. It's it's hard and it's it's dried out, and then you get you have a lot of surface runoff. So uh, a dried out soil won't let the next rain event won't let it in. So you need a soil that is already a bit moist, so um, that the pores are open, and and that's what we have in, in agroforestry. But then, like this is the the benefit, and we don't have the um, uh, what's the what's the opposite of a benefit um, drawback. But we don't have the drawback of um, uh, of a closed canopy um, uh, holding up the rain. Um, so we know that in general. Uh, a, a light tree cover, like a, a savanna structure, um, is uh, is better for for groundwater recharge than a closed canopy forest, and um, and yeah, and, and and that's something we can adapt to in forest management as well, um, because I think um, the way we are we are doing forestry is not suited to the to the demand of the industry anymore, and we can. Um, try to do more um, copies with uh, standards um, uh, forestry again, which would lead to the forests having more of a cooler structure with, with, a, with a lot of um, uh, surface area. Um, but the second thing is, um, uh, th there's two more things. The one thing is very obvious, we need to have more broadleaf trees in the, in the forests. Uh, I don't need. I don't think we, we need to talk about that. It's like that's common knowledge now. Okay, that's what people already really got. Um, well, go ahead and break but, it down yeah. anyway for people who don't understand the difference of the interaction of broadleaf trees and coniferous trees or evergreen trees in a forestry configuration. Yeah. Um, so uh, the thing is, broadleaf trees first they uh, they lose their foliage in winter time. So uh, the interception of rainwater in winter is, uh, is less. So we get more of the winter rainfall into the soil. And second, um, the foliage of broadleaf trees uh, decays much quicker because needles are made to have maximum resistance uh, against a, a tough climate. And uh, that's, that means there's a lot, lot of, uh, uh, yeah, like, substances in the in, in the needle and and the form is uh is adapted to to uh yeah not not being easy to to attack by by microorganisms by by temperature everything so and if a needle falls to the ground it needs much longer to decay and is less suitable food for the soil life that means in a, a coniferous forest the the soil is much less active and and you have a lot less uh, bioturbation, like like uh, uh, earthworms digging their their holes in the grounds and uh, microorganisms being active, and that's why you usually get thick layers of needles and very low humus contents, and that means the soil in uh, in a broadleaf forest is much more of a sponge than in a coniferous forest. And that's why we get more water in. So, um, yeah, that, that's that's the the basic idea behind it. So, but the third thing is um, to to get a better groundwater re recharge in the region. We need to stop surface runoff. That's the most important thing. We don't have uh, too little rain. We have enough rain in Brandenburg. We have been having. 500 millimeters of rain for centuries and it works we we, we had a, a a forested landscape it was a landscape very rich in water like 1200 years ago um the the slavic tribes who settled here they they settled here because it was a country so rich in in fish and and wood uh they they came here to live here in peace um and uh, and and because it was a rich country and um, so uh, we don't have too little rain. We just need to use it differently because we, um, we drain the landscape. We, we put ditches everywhere to, to do uh, plowing and farming in, in uh, places where, where there were 
swamplands, uh, um, uh, uh, floodplains, and, and bogs. And uh, we, it's just, yeah, it, that was too much. We need to get back from these areas and let them be bogs again or floodplains. Um, but that's only like one thing. That's like the lowest places in the landscape. And if the water comes there, it's already too late. We need to stop water in the upper areas of a landscape. And that applies to, um, to a hilly landscape, but also to a flatter landscape, because we always have differences in the, in the altitude and in the, uh, in the uh, shape of the, of the land. And that's where key line design comes in. It's not applicable everywhere in uh, flatter landscapes, but it is astonishing in how much places it actually works. If we, we have seen areas which have a slope of, of 2.5% in general, and if you if you apply Kledine design, um, you get a significant and measurable plus in, in water going into the soil. Um, it also depends on, on the soil texture, the soil type, and so on. Um, but that's the, the, the third thing I wanted to talk about. If we want to restore groundwater and hydrology, um, it's, it's not done by looking at the rivers, at the low points in the landscape and restoring them. We need to, to look at the highest places in the, in the landscape and start there and say, there's no surface runoff anymore. We won't lose any water. We will put all the water that's coming from above into the soil and that will go into the wells, into the rivers as well. We won't lose our rivers if we stop surface runoff. Yeah, that's important to say because some people say, hey, if you put every water in the ground, uh, won't the rivers dry out? No, they won't. They will be fed by the wells and uh, they will have less severe flood events. They will have clearer water. And that's why the fish populations can come back and the whole water, water bodies will, restore, will get restored as well. But groundwater as well. And groundwater is drinking water. So if we want to live here sustainably in this landscape, we need to stop surface runoff and put the water back in the soil for plant production and drinking water production. So that's the three things I wanted to say to your last question. And now the question um, uh, about the uh, legal uh, restrictions to implementing agroforestry. I think there are no legal restrictions um, that could um, yeah, actually be really in the way of implementing agroforestry. I've been doing agroforestry planning professionally for seven years now, and um, which, is, which is a long time in the, in the young agroforestry scene. <laughs> it's not, not a long time uh, in terms of how trees grow. Um, yeah, but... Um, it's it's a it's a very long time. Um, so and and I've been doing agroforestry plantings in on arable land all the time without having a distinct um, a grant scheme for agroforestry in Germany because we we can improvise. We have uh, a lot of um, uh, perennial crop cultures um, that that are. Um, legal in, in agriculture or that can get a grant. We have like annual crops and, and you basically, you have, well, in, in Germany, it, it works like this. You have, you have two types of grants. The first is you just get a grant per hectare um, farming that you do. Um, and that is according to what you grow. So every year you say of wheat, and then there's a list of codes and it says, okay, wheat, you get, I don't know, 300 euros per hectare wheat. And because we want more corn in the region, for example, you get 350 euros for one hectare of corn. Um, so these codes, they change every four years and uh, according to what policies uh, and um, which is kind of absurd of the time. So you get, money for the for the most ridiculous things and, and others hey we need more of this they get too little funding uh anyway so we have perennial crops in this code list as well 
Um, so because people want to run, uh, like for example, an apple plantation or a walnut plantation or aronia berries or whatever. And uh, there's only a, like uh, a very limited list of codes because the administration doesn't want to, to put up a theme for perennial culture that you can do. So there's a code for um, all other perennial cultures. And that's something that you use most of the time. If you do uh, fancy agroforestry stuff with plantings, you can always put it in this code of all other perennial cultures. And then you get a, get a normal funding for it. And the second is that you that farmers often get um, uh, money for, for extra ecological um, uh, uh, services. So for example, if and that's like uh, dependent on the federal state of Germany you're in. In Bavaria, there's a grant scheme for trees in the fields. And that means you just get, uh, I don't know, eight, eight euros 50 per tree in a field. Um, and, and so you can, you can, you can get the, like the, the basic grant scheme for growing wheat, for example, plus you get eight euros 50 for every tree that's in the field. So um, we don't need a distinct agroforestry grant scheme to do agroforestry. The important thing is that ecologically, we want to have agroforestry. From the legal point of view, it's okay to have a mixture of annual and perennial cultures then it's still agroforestry. But, but farmers usually don't get it. They say, what? We don't have a grand scheme for agroforestry. How can we do agroforestry? And I'm, I'm like, look, you're doing agroforestry. You have wheat here and apples here. That's agroforestry. And it's just two, two, two grant codes. So it works. Plus, uh, next year, we will get an agroforestry grant scheme, which will be ridiculous because it's just 60 euros per hectare. Um, where all annual cultures will be like 300, 400, 500 euros per hectare. So nobody will do it. That's really ridiculous, but I'm, I think that's the important thing that um, agroforestry advisors and planners like me have to communicate with the farmers, say, look, we are getting an agroforestry grant scheme, but don't use it. <laughs> um, do, do it like we always did it. That's more profitable and we can do nice things with it as well. Um, there's just some drawbacks um, uh, which relate to this, um, yeah, um, this um, uh, mindset we have in policy. This, this, there's some people tend to link. Uh, nature conservation with climate change as well that it's it's like we, we have this huge climate problem now but people are still thinking in terms of conservative nature protection and uh we're having the climate of of uh, of southeastern austria here as well already like like in brandenburg we have the climate they had in southeastern austria hungary uh 30 years ago the, the climate zones are shifting. And in, in Brandenburg, for example, um, the, the thing that grows best, the tree that grows best is, uh, is the um, uh, false acacia, uh, Rubinia. Uh, what's it called in English? Ah, black locust. Black locust, yeah. yep. And yeah, and, and now last year, the, the Green Party or whoever, I don't, I don't know. Um, I don't want to, to, uh, to blame anyone, but, but some people with a conservationist mindset managed to uh, to ban black locust from agroforestry plantings and from um, from short rotation plantings because they say it's a non-native species and it's like it's the only thing that still grows here why should we ban it it's it's ridiculous it's it's a perfect it's a perfect bee um, tree it, it has a lot of honey and, and, and it's, it comes to a time where, where bees really needed we have the the biodiversity crisis bees and wild bees need need uh, forage again and um it's it's the best wood we can have here it's the most durable wood we can grow here it grows fast it's uh, it's a it's a nitrogen fixer um so why on earth do we ban it it's it's ridiculous, yeah. It's got and some of the highest PPUs oh, yeah. for fuel wood as well. 
It never rots. Yeah. yeah. I, I've taken a real yeah. interest it's in great. this I because the, the Forestry Commission in the national park where we're moving to has uh, gone to great lengths to remove black locusts from the riparian zones, the riverways, going to the effort of actually um, putting poison into the trunks, because obviously if you just cut them down, they'll re-sprout. Um, so yeah, this is, this is an issue that's yeah. affecting everywhere right now. And for some reason, that, that particular tree, despite how hardy and useful and uh, just incredible it is, has been chosen for being non-native. And I completely agree with this, this mindset of conservation that we need to get out of. Mm, yeah, we, we don't, we can't afford that mindset. We need to, to start seeing humans as a part of nature. And we, well, in a very short time on this planet, like in 1000 years, we mixed everything up. Um, but that's what we have today and we need to deal with it. And, and, and we can't get back to, um, I, I don't know, like, like, pretending that there are no humans on this planet transporting seeds from A to B. That's what we do. That's what birds do. We're just doing it faster. And yes, there's shit happening. Uh, we have things like, like um, I don't know, uh, willow herb spreading all over Scotland in 10 years and annoying the people. Or we have, uh, uh, I don't know, black locust growing somewhere where it didn't grow before. But we also have potatoes and corn growing in Europe. And we have horses in Northern America. Yeah, imagine, imagine the, the old Western movies without Native Americans riding horses. Where did they get them? They get, got them from the Spanish in the, in the late um, 1400s. So yes, humans uh, act as a vector. We're shifting things. And that's it. We need to deal with it. And in some places, it's... it's um, it's 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 also it's also a good thing thanks again to philip gerhardt i'll be posting all of the links that he mentioned in the show notes for this episode on the website where you can also find all of the previous episodes from the last five seasons and before i wrap this up just remember that these episodes are only the beginning of the ongoing conversations happening around these topics on the regenerative skills discord server it's always free to join, and it's also the easiest way to get in touch with me directly. If you're interested in helping to guide the direction and the focus of this show into the future, or just get some feedback on your own projects and have some questions answered, it's all happening there. So come join the growing community of Earth Regenerators in the forum by signing up through the link on the website or through our link tree on Instagram. Now in the next episode in this series on tree planting and agroforestry, we're gonna pick back up with the second half of this conversation and explore a whole range of topics from how to restore health to existing woodlands, example planting configurations that can create faster return on investment, business opportunities in forestry management, and a whole lot more. So be sure to subscribe to this show and leave a review wherever you stream your podcast from so that you never miss an episode. And that's it for today's show. But as always, don't forget to keep taking those little steps every day towards a regenerative future. And I'll be right by your side along the way.